From Wrap Your Head Around Silks, this is the Expecting Aerialist Podcast, now part of the Digitant family of podcasts. How's it going, guys? Wonderful to have you today. I hope you're enjoying your summer. It is finally hot here in Los Angeles, and uh, me and Bean are enjoying the pool, um, enjoying all of the beautiful 100-degree weather that's going to be coming at us. All right, my friends, uh, before we get started... Check the show notes. Lots going on. Wrap your head around silks. Roll it out. It is uh, my answer to how you're going to carve out the time to roll and maintain your body for an affordable price, especially if you don't have a masseuse in your area that that deals with aerialist problems. So check it out there. I've got classes on Sunday and Tuesday evenings. And then more importantly, there's a student portal that you can access a weekly video our rolling, and then also smaller mini videos on different parts of the body that you can focus on. And tons more free, like I just put a bunch of free stuff on there. So check out the website. All right, guys, this is Katrina Lee Tsai. She is uh, out of the San Diego area. And her and I went back and forth a couple times over the last year and a half because she, um, she ended up having a DNC and it was... It was uh, such a sad and tragic life event for her, but she did want to share it. But with all the stuff with Roe v. Wade, um, you know, she was hesitant. But, you know, she rethought it. She changed her mind, and she's she's here to tell her entire story. She's also Chinese-American, and I I felt her story so hard. Let me tell you guys, um, just that Chinese-American experience um, for girls, yeah. So I am so grateful to you, Katrina, for becoming vulnerable and sharing this story with this community. And um, I I know that a lot of you guys are going to get benefit from it, especially if you're going through something similar. All right, my friends, let's get started. You had reached out to me or I had reached out to you. Do you remember which one? Um, You had reached out to me, I believe, after a post on the aerial... um, like pregnancy and postpartum aerialists group on Facebook. I think after you, I think either I commented on someone who had a really similar um, kind of like miscarriage as mine. And I commented on her post um, uh-huh. in support of her telling her my story of something very similar. And then you reached out to me after that you messaged me. So, yeah. And I had reached out and you had said, you know, now's not the best time. But then yeah, I, months went by. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the best time for me to tell my miscarriage story because it was still so raw and new. And um I'm not sure. I think at that time I wasn't either I wasn't pregnant yet or I was still struggling a lot. Um just with still trying after my miscarriage and it was hard for me to talk about it. And I believe at that time too, um like Roe v. Wade was overturned and I was very um, just kind of sensitive and actually scared to tell my story, to to be honest. Um, so I, I don't know if you want me to lead into it right now, but... Yeah, so yeah. Uh, months later, many, many months. Yeah, yeah many months maybe. later. I think after a couple of just like life experiences um, and having my my son, who I have now, who's 16 months, 
And um, going through this past Mother's Day, I felt more comfortable talking about my miscarriage and how Ariel got me through that. Okay, so so I'm going to have Katrina start at the beginning. But uh, yeah, so I was like, oh, this story needs to be told. But luckily, time goes and, and we can just, we can wait. It's okay. So I'm really excited for you to share the story. I was about 16 weeks pregnant um, when I discovered my baby had a birth defect called anencephaly. Um, that is a neuro, neural tube defect where the skull and the head of the baby don't form all the way. Um, it was a little later in my pregnancy when I discovered it because I actually didn't know I was pregnant for the first trimester. Um, I was going through a very like stressful time at, a, uh, at an old workplace of mine. And, you know, I just didn't, I wasn't aware that I was pregnant. And a friend of mine encouraged me to take a couple pregnancy tests. I took six and I just didn't believe I was pregnant at the time. And when I went into the doctor's office, I saw a nurse because it was post COVID and they did an ultrasound. And at that time, um, no one said anything to me about um, having a birth defect and the baby not forming properly. Um, I remember when the nurse looked at my ultrasound, she just asked me if I had an assigned OBGYN and I said I didn't and she said well you better go see one soon and um, I think I was just processing like the whole fact that I was pregnant and um, just didn't know what that really meant so I I took home this ultrasound um, not knowing that it wasn't a viable pregnancy unfortunately and for like a week and a half I was celebrating the fact that I was pregnant um, that we were going to have a baby and, um, telling everybody. And then the following week I went in and, uh, I had got a, I had gotten an assigned OB and the OB was like, I'm sorry to tell you this, but, um, your, your baby has anencephaly and it's not a viable pregnancy and you're 14 to 16 weeks along. And at this point you're in your second trimester and it's very dangerous for you to be carrying this pregnancy. Um, so up until this point, I had been feeling really like lethargic, tired. I couldn't, I couldn't eat. I was like um, in pain sometimes. And I always just kind of like chalked it up to um, my job at the time. Um, since the, the workplace I was at was very stressful. And um, no, it was, it was a sign of my, of my body telling me that this wasn't a viable pregnancy and something was wrong. And um, My OB uh, was very understanding. She just sat with me as I processed everything. I was just crying hysterically. And I remember being by myself because it was just post-COVID and only one person could go into the doctor's office at the time. And I was just crying uncontrollably. I didn't know what to do. And um, they offered me um, a solution and they said, you know, um, we really recommend that you have a DNC. to, you know, evacuate the the fetus at the time. And the other option would be to, you know, take take pills um, to to pass the pregnancy. Um, But I had been so far along at the time that they didn't recommend that. And actually it was just the better option for me to to go in for surgery um, for the DNC and just um, complete the process. 
And when I was with the OB, um, I kept trying to say, like, is this, is there some way I can make this work? Is there some way I could somehow make this pregnancy work for me and my husband? Um, I just felt like an overwhelming sense of guilt. Like I had done something wrong and I don't know if it's just my cultural upbringing, being like Asian American or not feeling like maybe I had eaten something wrong or just, um, physically done something to have caused this to, um, to the baby. And really like in hindsight, there was nothing I could have done, um, to really change anything. Um, but I struggled with that guilt for over a year afterwards. And, uh, luckily, um, even with COVID protocols, they got me in to, um, to get my, my DNC pretty quickly. And I went to a woman's hospital um, where I live. And it's just, it's a hospital that's just geared towards women who are also pregnant and delivering. So I go into this hospital and all I see are pregnant women. And I'm there for something completely different. Um, and it, I was just in a haze, but those, the staff were so understanding. They were all women. And I remember the doctor telling me, like taking my hand um, as I was crying right before surgery. And she said, let me take your pain and make it mine. And what you're doing is the right thing because you cannot carry this pregnancy any longer. And I just kept saying to myself, like, like I'm sorry to, to the fetus, um, to the baby. I kept saying, I'm sorry over and over again. And I remember one of the nurses said, um, she looked at me and she said, like, you know, this is the right thing. Like your baby isn't going to survive if you ever carried this baby to term and you, and you possibly, you can't, you can't carry this baby to term because it's uh, very detrimental to your health, you know, and one day in the future, you're going to be a great mom. And they all held my hands. And then I walked into the surgical room and I don't remember much after that, but what I do remember is in recovery of them wheeling me out to the front of the hospital of the women's hospital and um, sitting at the front of the hospital, I'm sitting at the front with all the other women who just had their babies and seeing them holding their babies, um, being so, so happy. I, it just almost broke me on the inside because I was going home. I still looked pregnant, but I didn't have a baby in my arms and I, I almost lost it. I, I, was, I was crying so hard. And the woman, the volunteer rolling me out um, to the car that my husband was pulling around, like knew to pull me across the street and put me somewhere and like angle me away where I couldn't um, see all the other happy mothers coming out. And I'm just really grateful for every person I encountered that day that took care of my mental health. Um, so yeah, I, I just really struggled a lot afterwards, um, seeing, even hearing the cries of a baby would set me into a spiral, like a depressive spiral. I, I could not be around anyone with kids. I couldn't talk to any of my friends that were pregnant at the time. Um, I think all I really saw were just, I felt like a failure. Like I felt like my body had failed me. Um, and even taking a shower after all of that, like I couldn't I couldn't take a shower for, for days after because I didn't even want to see my my body naked because I, I still looked pregnant. And just seeing that like bump 
made me feel like a failure on the inside. Like, well, I have a bump. I don't have the baby. Um, I have engorged breasts, but I don't have a baby. It's slightly engorged, not, not fully. Um, so yeah, I had a hard time looking at myself in the mirror for like several weeks after. Um, I had to come out of the shower. My husband had to throw a towel over me and like hug me to make sure that I didn't just break down in front of the mirror because of how I felt about my body. Um, so at, during that time after my, my miscarriage, after my DNC, I worked on just kind of my self-esteem and building my body image back up again. And a lot of that I attribute to um, Ariel and all of my Ariel classes that I took. Um, so I've been doing by that time, um, Ariel Silks and Lyra for about like three to four years. And um, I just threw myself back into that, just taking every single class that was available, um, just trying to condition more. Um, because at the end of the day, when I would finish an aerial class, I would feel accomplished and I would feel that my body was able to, you know, complete and do something else. Like maybe I couldn't get pregnant at the time, but I could at least do aerial. And that's where I really built my confidence and my love for my body and for myself back up was through um, Lyra and Silk's classes. So, and I, I think the biggest lesson for me um, coming away from it with how things are now politically is it's such a difficult process for women to go through. I don't think it should be more difficult on top of that, regardless of whatever reason it is. Um, our reason for choice is so important because this is such a tough and emotional decision for us. And it lands on us as women to just kind of bear that, that emotional trauma that comes with making this type of decision. And, you know, the only thing that really helped me afterwards were with my self-confidence were, you know, the aerial classes and talking to other, other women who also had very late-term miscarriages. Um, when I had posted about my situation with anencephaly and a DNC on Facebook, I had a lot of friends um, message me privately and tell me their stories. Um, you know, some losing babies at 38 weeks, some losing um, theirs very early on in the second trimester. Just every story is so different with what each woman deals with privately, and we don't speak about it enough. I didn't even know what anencephaly was until the doctor told me. I didn't know that was even possible. I just thought pregnancies were like what they show on TV. Everybody's happy, you know, the baby fully forms and, and grows um, with just no no interruption there. And, and it was my first pregnancy. So I thought the first pregnancy is always okay. Right. Um, that's not necessarily true. So it really just kind of, um, I, I think just this whole experience just changed my perspective on, you know, just female, like, like women's reproductive rights and, um, just like where we are, we're at with like our rights in, in the US and that importance of making a choice. It's not an easy choice. I think when um, people say it's, it's you know, uh, like abortion is like birth control, that's completely 
it, it really sets me off. It gets me very angry because, yeah. because yeah. of my experience, it, it's, uh, sorry, I just have to take a breath because it makes me that mad. Um, this is such a hard decision for, for all of us um, to take on that burden together as women. And Katrina, yeah. are you Chinese? Yes, I am. You're full Chinese? I am, yeah. So I have that Chinese upbringing. Yeah. I have that. And then note. how about your husband? My husband's Taiwanese, yeah. Taiwanese. And then you live in San Diego, right? I do, yeah. So in some states, had you lived in another state mm-hmm. right now, you would have had to travel. You would have had to leave your state to get your DNC. And how, how far in between you having that conversation with that OB and actually the surgery being performed, like what was the time? It was only a week. And so I was very, very lucky because, um, I had a friend in a similar situation. She had to wait two weeks. Um, but she was in a state where they allowed her to do that as well. But if you think about it, if you're already in that situation and you have to travel across states yep. or find the means of, you know, traveling across states costs money. Um, yep. So not everybody has a form of transportation and, and a lot of women often don't times may not have, you know, the contacts or the people that they can trust to bring them um, or drive them even to the place where they need to be. They might be in an unsafe situation. And so it's so incredibly isolating already putting a vulnerable population in an even more vulnerable position and just kind of like sticking it to them like that. That's how I feel. And I'm just so glad to be in California where we're allowed to put women's rights first, or I mean, human rights first, actually, that's a better way to, to phrase that. And I remember my OB saying like, we want to just get you in as quickly as possible because every single day that I spent being pregnant was actually a detriment to my health. Right. You would have gone separate. Would you have gone septic yeah. if you wait too long? Yeah, definitely. She kept trying to explain that. Like my OB kept trying to explain the situation to me. Like, no, you can't. You can't continue to carry this pregnancy. I was, I was so sick. I, um, my thyroid hormones were off the charts. I was so tired all the time. I had very little energy. I, I actually felt kind of like something was completely off with me. And I, I didn't really know what a healthy pregnancy felt like. So I thought that was just part of being pregnant was feeling just very terrible all the time. Um, and I didn't realize until later, it was my body's way of telling me that I wasn't able to carry, you know, this pregnancy, there's something wrong with this pregnancy and it needs to be, uh, terminated. Okay. I'm going to stop for a second because I'm making notes because I want to ask about three things that I think that are huge rabbit holes that we could like completely forget about the other things that I wanted to ask you about. If, if anyone's listened to this podcast at all, I I rant about this every once in a while because I'm so angry about it. Um, it is such a needle to thread. It is such a, like these politicians, they have no idea what they're talking about. Zero. No, Zero idea what they're talking about. And then that leads to the people that are listening to them who also don't know what they're talking about, shaming women. Right. And the one thing that I saw, and it was a long time ago, I stopped like, you know, like you see a post or a, a Twitter, a tweet, and then you go down, you start listening, looking at what people are saying. Mm-hmm. And 
the thing that got me to stop looking is somebody was slut shaming someone else. Mm -hmm. They were saying that like, it was in a lot of different ways. Like if you didn't sleep around, you wouldn't have this problem. If you, if women weren't so slutty, if you didn't dress like that, this wouldn't be a problem. Like the, the worst of the worst, the worst of the worst. And like, get the fuck out of here. I think it absolutely it has nothing to does, do with anything. Yeah, it's crazy. it absolutely does not matter what the reason is. What no. matters is that it's our bodies and we have that choice because, um, you know, ultimately you look at society now, women are, you know, women will, if I think the health of the mom, the mental health of the mom really, really, really impacts the outcome of the children, right? And if you don't feel ready to raise a child, which is now I'm raising a 16 month old, then you shouldn't be forced to do that because that ultimately like that falls on you to, to raise the kid. Like these politicians are not raising your kid. They're not setting up society to be in such a way where your child is taken care of or adoptions are quite easy to go through. You look at our, our, social welfare system right now and there just needs to be leaps and bounds of improvements for families in general to mm-hmm. have and maintain family in the u.s and if i feel like if politicians can't provide that backbone then they have no right or actually it doesn't even matter they they don't have any right over our bodies because they sure as hell aren't telling men what to do with their bodies at all no the men aren't even a part of the conversation because they can just slip away and yeah like the amount of stories that I have gladly been able to create a platform for mm-hmm. the endopic pregnancies yeah. or endo- I can't even say it. Oh my God. Yeah. The ectopic ones. Ectopic preg- pregnancies, stories like yours, Yeah. stories where the mother will die. Yeah. Stories where the baby would never survive. Yeah. yeah. And it's all about killing babies and, and I know that it's all rhetoric and it's all meant to be rhetoric mm-hmm. to make people afraid and make people angry. So it's doing its job in a parent in a way, because that's, that's the reason why they're saying it. They're not trying to thread a needle. They're not trying to be um, empathetic. They're not trying to like the amount of different reasons why, why women need this particular type of healthcare is, is so multifaceted and, and multifaceted, um, issues don't get talked about on, you know, like a headline or just a clip, a a sentence out of a politician's mouth. And because of that, people are hurting and people are dying or they're having forced pregnancies. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I haven't, I'm gratefully and blessed. I've never had to deal Mm -hmm. with having this procedure, but in that time when I did ask you if you would come on and you didn't feel ready to do it, Mm -hmm. how much was the, how much was that a part of it? Like the stuff that was going on in our country? It was probably 90% part of it. I didn't want people to know that I had a DNC, which is essentially an abortion. 
And I didn't want to be judged for that because like, I didn't want to have to go into the whole situation of having a baby with anencephaly and trying to kind of so-called prove that it was a medically necessary abortion. I, it's already such a traumatic experience and I've had to deal with so much emotional, so, so many feelings around it that I didn't even want to bring it up again. Um, because you just never know what people are going to say about, um, yeah, about like having a DNC. And, um, like I, you know, I do know people who have differing views from mine, but they haven't been in my situation and maybe they're not so open-minded and that's where, I'm afraid of judgment, but as more time has passed, I realize that's really not so much the case. Like most people believe in, you know, basic human rights and the right to choose. And I'm more willing to come out and say that, yes, I've had a DNC, I've had an abortion and this was the better choice for me and uh, where I was at that time in my life, because I, it, it was incredibly life-threatening for me to have that pregnancy and keep carrying it along. I'm okay with saying that now because um, I was such in, a, in such a fragile state at that time. Right, what, right. What was going on politically, I was scared of, of, I don't know, people maybe attacking me online or thinking differently of me. Uh, if you were to say, if it leaned more towards the people that you aren't close to or the people that you are close to, um, was it more just like the public? I think more of the public, like everybody I knew uh, was very supportive of me getting um, getting the DNC and, and having it done. Everybody, I, everybody at my aerial studio knew about it too in my classes and they were just so sweet um, and supportive of me at that time. And um, so it's not so much, I think pretty much it's safe to say that everybody in my close circle is is very more towards like the the general you know women's rights or human rights side of the spectrum um so I would just say like the outer circle of more religious people um I was a little bit more afraid of of my parents at the time too when the DNC was suggested not because they're religious Uh, my mom did grow up Catholic though and I did go to Catholic school um for quite some time but mainly because um, I was scared to tell them because I was scared that they would would kind of blame um, blame the, the the birth defect, the anencephaly, on something that I was that I had done. Um, and so, kind of like leading into that, um, when when I did tell them of my pregnancy, they're like, "Well, you have you have to drink Chinese medicine every day. You have to drink special soups and keep the womb warm." and really take care of yourself. And when I found out that the baby had anencephaly a week or two later, I had felt like it was something I ate or it was something I was doing that was my fault that didn't follow like their Chinese medicine advice. And I was scared to tell them that the baby was no longer viable and then I'd have to get a DNC because I felt like it was somehow my fault. And I think it's just that Asian guilt um, that guilt of thinking that, you know, I had somehow had control over this and it was really something ultimately I did inadvertently that caused me to, to 
have a baby with anencephaly, but my parents were actually really quite understanding when they found out. They had a really hard time processing it though. Um, they they kept asking if there was something else I could have done or like, you know, I, I, I think one of my parents did let it slip that maybe if I just kept drinking more of those soups, like, you know, the baby would have developed properly, but I, I think it's just um, not really so much cultural, but in their case, like they, they hadn't experienced a miscarriage or something like this before, and they didn't really know what to make of it. And we had a hard time connecting emotionally also because like I'm um, very Americanized and, and they're immigrants to this country. So we already have a hard time connecting emotionally. And so it's hard for them to kind of put their arm around me and say like, I'm sorry, or oh, I don't, I don't know how to better comfort you. And so my parents kind of like slipped into doing like different things to, to, to reassure me and comfort me. Like my mom kept trying to get me to drink more Chinese medicine to like recover after. Um, my father at the time started researching what anencephaly was. I'm just trying to figure out if there's some way to prevent it next time. Um, something better that I could have done next time to, to ensure a safe and, and healthy pregnancy, which, you know, as we know, like it was all just chance, you know? Um, so it's just culturally, it's very hard, I think, for immigrant parents to be there for you when emotionally, like you're very vulnerable. And, um, you know, I would see other parents coming and just like hugging their kids and be like, it's going to be okay. But my, my parents have never really been like that. They've been very stern, very um, immigrant, like um, Chinese, Chinese parents. So Katrina, I feel you so hard right now. Like, like, oh, through this podcast, I have met a handful of women who, sorry, I just had a coughing fit, you guys, I'm not crying, but I might start talking to my, parent, my parents. And this, this um, experience as a first-generation Chinese-American female. Yeah. Um, like, you know, they come to this country wanting the best for their kids, but my parents, even though they're very much like, Americanized to a point, they have, they have very little emotional, emotional skills, very yeah, little. Definitely. And, and the, and the amount that they have is because we've taught them, not because they learned any other way. Mm -hmm. Um, my dad still says that he's like, you know, he'll say to me, I want to talk to you but he doesn't know how. And it's not because he doesn't have to speak good English. He really does. He doesn't have the vocabulary. He doesn't know how to speak his heart. And what happens, and you know, your parents love you. My parents love me, but our love language is because of that cultural difference. And because they don't have the emotional skills that hopefully generations forward <laughs> will get better. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I even struggle. I even struggle with um, being able to talk to my partner because of the lack of emotional training I got from my parents. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know how to talk to each other. And when they want to give love, they just start cooking. I agree. My parents definitely put, like, showed their love in food. Um, my mom so much more food with, like, the Chinese medicine and making different soups. And then my dad 
because my dad was a um a phd um really sci big science guy like he started researching what anencephaly was and it, which is also awkward because he's researching like healthy pregnancies and how to get pregnant and things like that but it was his way of like caring and and comforting me at the time um he's no longer around like i i think a lot of um, sorry. what things like a, a little bit also of why i didn't initially want to go on this podcast is um my my dad had passed away at the time um so my my dad passed away right before i had my son um who's now 16 months but he passed away the same year i had my miscarriage so i had my miscarriage in dnc in in january of um I believe 2021. And then at the end of 2021, very, very end, my dad um, goes into hospice and passes away. He had stage four pancreatic cancer and he had been battling that for four years. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And I was trying to, at the time when I was pregnant with my, my son now, I was hoping my father would make it. Um, to see the birth of his grandson, but he, he wasn't able to, um, at least his body wasn't able to. And my, my son is actually partially named after my father. So what's, what's his name? Ethan Paul. And my dad's name was Paul. So, um, yeah, so it was just a lot to go through in one year. And I think, um, coming on the end of that, that's also part of why I had a hard time talking about everything. I was also, grieving um my father at the time so just processing a lot and then having having my son right after um two months after my my actually not even two months it was like five weeks after my dad passed I had my son and so it was just one thing after another uh that year and so a lot of people were checking in with me and they were asking me if I had you know postpartum depression, if I needed to talk to someone, if a lot, a lot of people are checking in with me, just kind of like wondering if I would experience postpartum depression. Um, and so I was incredibly grateful for that. And, you know, there's like a questionnaire you fill out every time you go to um, the doctor's office and I was filling that out, but I actually, you know, um, I, I don't know. I don't know how I really dealt with, with all of that, to be honest. I think I just like tend to throw myself into physical activity. And that's where doing silks and Lyra after um, having my son really just helped me get back into a better mental state for myself. Because and then, then again, I was dealing with a lot of like body image issues, like feeling like extra big, um, you know, the hormonal issues postpartum, which are a huge dip and no one really yeah. talks about. Yeah. Um, and then also grieving my father on top of that. So do you, I, do you, did you have postpartum? Just I didn't No, I, I didn't have postpartum depression. Luckily, I know a lot of women do. So I really do feel for them. Um, I, I honestly don't know how I got through that. I think it's also how I attribute, um, I leaned a lot on my, my husband at that time. And so he's very well-versed in, um, just because of like the industry he's in, like mental health and like spotting the signs. And just like, he really like was there watching to, to see how I was doing mentally with everything. And I just really leaned into, um, uh, just going to as many aerial classes as I could to just help with 
the grieving process and just processing everything that happened to me the prior year. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. This is so difficult. Yeah. And then I, I relate to part of that so much because that man, that Chinese guilt, it's so hard to like, I'm in a place with my family where things are really good and they're, they're much, much better, Mm -hmm. but I will still be very triggered even if they're not trying to, trying to lay guilt on me, trying to lay anxiety on me, trying to put stuff, even if they're not trying to do that, I'll get triggered by it because it was just the way I was raised. And it is really hard to, to get out of that place. How did you, how did you get to the place where you're able to, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I kind of want to say forgive yourself, even though you don't have anything to forgive yourself for. No, it's okay to ask those questions. How did I get to that place where I forgave myself and didn't think it was my fault that my baby had an encephaly? It took over a year. It took a while. I think all these things take a very long time, some longer, some shorter than others. It's all your own time frame. Um but what really broke it down for me, as odd as it sounds, was looking at the original ultrasound. Mm. And okay. um, a doctor friend of mine was really sweet. He reached out to me and he's, he really explained what anencephaly was. He said, like, your baby, Katrina, did not have a brain. Um, there was no skull formed. And so when you had your DNC, like your baby felt nothing. And obviously at at a certain point, like the baby in general doesn't feel anything. And so he said, like, you made the right decision, medical decision to do this. And it's not your fault because it's literally something that happens to one in 10,000 women. And you just happened to be the one that had it. And you can get pregnant again. Because at that time, after I had the DNC, I was trying to get pregnant right after. Um, I felt like I was trying to fill a void. And so I tried so hard to get pregnant. I did everything, you know, um, I just kind of, I didn't, I wouldn't say I went crazy, but I tried very hard to get pregnant right after, almost like I was trying to replace the original pregnancy. And for about uh, four months, like nothing was happening. I was getting very frustrated. And then when I really like sat with myself and a friend of mine recommended a bereavement doula, which I didn't know was a thing, but it's a special doula that comes to you to talk about like stillbirths or miscarriages. And it's a special network of women Um, at least here in San Diego, um, that my friend had reached out to. And she found a bereavement doula for me and sent her to my home. And this was very shortly after my DNC and I was in a haze and I didn't quite remember everything, but what this doula did was visit me right after. And she always will, the bereavement doula will always visit you right after you have your miscarriage, just to make sure you're okay and just talk to you. And then they'll check in with you a week later and then two weeks and then like three weeks later if you need it. And I didn't even know that was a thing. 
And so, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're struggling with the miscarriage and you're struggling with um, just like the weight of all of this, there are resources for you, like search for bereavement doula in your area. There's not just doulas for pregnancies. There's doulas for, for everything. There's actually hospice doulas too for, for people that aren't pregnant. And so, um, you know, she talked to me about why it wasn't my fault. Like, um, talked to me about her miscarriages, um, gave me a few books, um, and also gave me like tea and things to help me physically afterwards, because I was actually in a recovery period for, I mean, quite some time after right where I was healing. Um, and so it taught me like what supplements and teas to drink, what supplements to take to, to heal the uterus and kind of feel better about everything. And then eventually by the last visit, she taught me the cycling and how to get pregnant again, um, to where I just wasn't shooting in the dark. And so, so that knowledge of how to get pregnant again was kind of my power in recovery and the bereavement doula helped a lot with recovering and giving me my sense of self-worth back. So, so those were the things that helped me not feel so guilty was the bereavement doula coaching me, um, Ariel helping me build back up my body and, and seeing, Hey, you know, I can do all these things. I can invert, I can split, I can, um, do these incredible like feats of strength in class every day. So I felt better about myself at the time. And then finally, it was just a lot of like reflecting and, and self-acceptance and realizing that there are a lot of things in this world that are not under our control and it's all how we react to it. But it's also at the same time, um, understanding that things take time. Um, you, you won't recover from the loss of a pregnancy easily. Like that was something that was a big part of your life that affected you very deeply. It's okay to not be okay. So I really like sit in that last sentence a lot. It's okay to not be okay. There are some days there were some days after my DNC, I just didn't even remember the whole month of February, to be honest. Like I cried every single day. I don't remember a single thing that happened. That whole month is just black in my memory. Like I don't even remember what happened. And I think the days afterwards, I was trying to force myself to be happy, force myself to just move on with my life. And, um, at that time, like someone had told me, it's not about moving on. It's about moving forward one step at a time. And it's not even a step some days. It's maybe one inch forward and then 10 inches back. Other days you'll be leaping forward. And then the next day you'll you'll take, you know, three steps back. But all that matters is that you're just looking up and you're looking forward and you're not looking down. And that's what really got me through the following year, because at that time, like coinciding with that, my father, who was battling stage four cancer, um, continued to get worse. So it was almost like as I was getting over my miscarriage, my father's health continued to decline. And then the crux of that was Mother's Day. Um, Mother's Day, I was still trying to by that time in May, I was still trying to get pregnant. Nothing was happening. I, and I just like felt like a failure. And I, I had to just take myself off of social media that whole day. The whole day, I was just crying nonstop because I was just being reminded 
of, okay, like everybody is celebrating Mother's Day, but you're not because you're, you know, you're not pregnant, but you were, you were earlier this year, but you're not pregnant, but you could have been. And I really like laid in that for a while and beat myself up. And I remember a friend of mine um, texted me, several of them texted me to see how I was doing. And that helped a lot. Then two weeks later, I conceived my son and I was pregnant by June, um, which is my birthday. And I think when I, after Mother's Day, when I really sat with it and I realized I wasn't, I have to be at this place where I'm not trying to replace what I lost and that I need to kind of grieve properly and understand it's not totally my fault. When I found that peace within myself, that's when I became pregnant. That's, I really think that's what the key was, was trying to not replace what I lost and think that I could just replace one thing with another, one baby with another. Because when I stopped thinking that way, um, like I, I became pregnant and I know that's like a very strange thing to say, but I think shifting that perspective and realizing that loss isn't about replacing and it's not about taking that space up with something else. It's about feeling what you need to feel and understanding that was a part of your life. And, um, that's a part of your life. That's always going to like exist. It's always going to matter. And knowing that I can truly grieve and truly appreciate, appreciate that pregnancy for what it was. So I look at it differently now than I looked at it before. And I think I, I have that peace now. I like to, I can sit in that grief and I can feel it for what it is and I can move forward, but I don't need to move on, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Oh my God. You're goodness, so much to chew on. And thank you so much for sticking with this idea of getting on here because yeah if I can help um, everyone in the process like understand their grief a little bit better then this is totally worth it 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 is it is worth it to talk with you about it um but you know it's not about moving uh moving on I think we can just learn to accept our grief and move forward and it's okay to not be okay Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. And this, this, this podcast is going to come with a spoiler alert because, uh, I know out there, some of you ladies, you're going through this and you got to be kind of emotionally ready to hear the stories. So we'll definitely put that at the beginning. Yeah. But, um, I thank you, Katrina. And, um, I'm really excited for you and your new family now. Um, 16 months. So that's teething. Is it teething? Oh, he, teething he a has a full set of teeth. He came out, my son came out super long. He got his teeth super early. He's a full grown. I feel like sometimes he's a full grown adult now. Like he's a three <laughs> feet tall and he's not even two, two years wow. old. Wow. Are you guys tall? You and your husband? No, my, my husband is tall. I'm not. Um, so it's just like, I, I feel very, blessed to have him afterwards and if there's anything that I can say to anyone listening out there that's still trying after a lot of you know difficulty or miscarriages like there is hope on the horizon you know like my son was is my rainbow and I did I wasn't sure that if I could become pregnant afterwards and and I did and 
it's hard to keep that hope sometimes, but there are, there are stories out there that'll give you the strength to carry on. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. It's, uh, it's a, it's a, you have to go there to tell the story and Mm -hmm. I appreciate that a lot. Of course. Yeah. No, I'm glad I could share that with you and, and connect with you over that. So Katrina, oh my goodness. I just wish the best for you and your family. Um, So much to go through in such a short amount of time. And this pandemic just hit everybody in different ways. And, and uh, you are, you are a fighter. And um, wow, I'm just so, so inspired by you. So my friends, if you would honor me with a five-star rating and a review, check out the website as well to get some free resources. I'll also send out blogs, um, you know, with fun tidbits of aerial advice here and there, you know. We are part of the Digitent Family of Podcasts now, which means there's a bunch of health and wellness podcasts that you can access there if you want to go to the website, look at what they have to offer, um, you know, great stuff for moms for sure. And, uh, and if you want to hear the sound of my voice more and more, maybe not about aerial stuff, greener grass, we have such a variety of guests coming on and me and Kelly can lighten up your day while you're doing the laundry, doing the dishes, taking a walk, whatever, um, with just some ridiculous random talk and it's fun and it's lighthearted. All right, my friends over and out. I'll see you guys next time from Digit Podcast. This is the Expecting Artist.